and welcome to the Love Your Library podcast. I'm Hattie Dulac, here without a co-host, but joined by Femi Fadupa, quantum physicist and debut novelist, though I'll let him tell you which order he prefers. His new book, The Upper World, is an exciting story of love, violence and time travel, all set against the backdrop of Peckham. This compelling thriller is already picking up a lot of fans, not least Academy Award-winning actor Daniel Kaluuya, who's set to star in its Netflix film adaptation. I chatted to Femi about his scientific background, what inspires him, and what it feels like to get the phone call that Netflix is picking up your film. The interview begins with a short excerpt from the book. It takes an impressive mix of stupidity and bad luck to not be in a gang, but still find yourself in the middle of a gang war. I'd managed it in less than a week. And that was before the time travel. I knelt down, resting my elbows on one corner of the mattress where the sheet hadn't peeled off. Tired and alone in my bedroom, I was desperate for heavenly backup, but I couldn't make a call between Jesus, his mom, Thor, Prophet Muhammad, and the man he works for. That bald Asian dude in orange robes, Jesus' dad, Emperor Haile Selassie, my granddad's voodoo sculpture, Morgan Freeman, with that metal slab on the moon in the olden day film 2001. So to be safe, I prayed to the whole team. Dear Holy Avengers, I pleaded into my interlaced fingers. First off, please forgive me for being a prick on Monday and for lying to mom about what happened. So my name is Femi Faduba and my book, uh, my debut novel, The Upper World, has just come out. Um, in the UK and it's coming out in the US and, and worldwide as well over the next coming weeks and months. It's a science fiction contemporary novel. Um, it's a story about love, violence and the physics of time travel that just so happens to take place in Peckham. And it's also going to be a film, a Netflix film with Danny Kalia starring and, and, and producing it. So yes, yeah, a lot of, lot of things going on. Welcome to the podcast. We're so, so happy to have you. As you mentioned in your in your introduction, it's such a book with so much to it. And I suppose you, you did give a good intro to it, but is there anything else about the book that you'd like to tell us? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, I, I can give you a sort of quick uh, summary of what happened just to kind of bring you into it a bit more. So you have this 16-year-old boy named Esso who's sort of wedged between two very different friendship groups. So on, on one side... He's got a group of fun-loving, piss-taking mates. And on the other side, he's got a group of mates who are also fun-loving and piss-taking, but at the same time, dragging him, him into sort of prosperous life-and-death situations. And then he's also got Nadia, the girl at the front uh, of, of class who sits in the front row, um, who he's been obsessed with since the day he met her and is trying to figure out a way to tell her that he's obsessed with her. And so one morning, he's running to catch the 36 bus to school, and he sees a kid about to get run over, a little boy, and he decides he's going to save him. And in the process of pushing him out of the way of this Range Rover, he gets knocked out, uh, not just out of consciousness, but out of reality as we know it. Um, and he enters this place called the Upper World. And so the Upper World is a realm where reality appears the way physics describes it. So he can literally see his whole life. Um, you know, on the left, he has his birth, over there, you know, on the right, he has his, his, his death and everything in between, his whole life, the whole of time um, as this sort of four-dimensional flat structure, again, the way that it's described in physics. 
And while he's up there, he manages to catch, catch a glimpse of the end of his day. Um, and it's, it's not so good. He's, he's basically he sees uh, him and his uh, his best mates and, and also Nadia are basically in a completely the situation where it looks like everybody's about to die. So he gets knocked out of the upper world again and back into the normal 3D world and realizes he's got till the end of the day to save himself and everyone he loves and likes. And that little does he know, uh, sort of a generation later, there's, there's a girl named Rhea, a football prodigy and, and kind of hidden physics kind of genius as well. And older Esso is trying to team up with her because he believes that she holds the keys to preventing the same thing that he's trying to prevent, um, which is the, the event at night. And so you, you join both of them on this kind of epic adventure kind of taking place mostly over one day, but also skipping forward into the future. Yeah, it's definitely one of the books that most makes sense to use that sort of non-chronological or a split timeline format. I think it, it just suits it so perfectly, doesn't it? Obviously, you've mentioned physics quite a lot in, in that summary, but to give a bit of background to our listeners, you have a master's in quantum physics from Oxford. I hope that's right. And I did read on an article or something that actually your journey into physics, like one of the points of inspiration was quite a, almost you wouldn't believe it, but I read that your secondary school caretaker handed you something that began your journey. Is, is that right? So my, my, my no, not that any of the listeners will care, but I, I just, <laughs> in terms of like the, what's it called? The, I, I did material science um, as the sort of actual name of the degree. And then I did my thesis and kind of published in quantum computing. So it's quantum physics with the slightly more practical lens of trying to come up with the algorithms that, you know, we'll use once we figure out how to build quantum computers, which I think will happen pretty soon. But anyway, I left that world and done a, done a bunch of kind of random things since then, including writing this book. <laughs> but yeah, no, I, I think, uh, the, yeah, what, what you're saying is actually true. I mean, so it's a weird story and I, I almost hesitate to say it a little bit because it sounds fake and it sounds like <laughs> I, stole, I stole it from a film. I think the first time I said it, somebody said, that's, that's kind of like thinking Goodwill Hunting that happens, isn't it? Whereas, I, I mean, it wasn't, it's almost like the guy who taught me was the genius, if that makes any sense. Because he was, he, was he was actually a janitor. Can you believe that? Um, Very good will hunting. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> See what I mean? <laughs> um, and so, yeah, no, I mean, I think I was lucky, especially because before then I was, I was pretty rubbish at school in general, not just the physics. Um, I just, yeah, I mean, I, I don't think I was the worst student, but yeah, there were a lot of, lot of our school that didn't fit. Um, and so it was a, a crucial moment because I think with anything, just getting someone curious about something is kind of the, the key step. If you can do enough to get someone asking questions, and then if you are lucky to not be lucky enough to be in an environment where you can follow up that curiosity and kind of feed it with with answers as well, then then the, when those two things connect, then you can actually bring a lot out of a kid. I think I believe that quite strongly again because I, I kind of went through a lot of some patches where. Had to, yeah, I was definitely seen as one of the kids that was behind. So do you see the sort of representations of physics in this as maybe a gateway for people to get interested and spark that curiosity about it? Yeah, I hope so, actually. I mean, the goal is uh, that if, if you read this book, I mean, most importantly, if you read the book, you get to experience a fun ride, I think, and, and something that you haven't really read before. I think regardless of how you, you feel about any aspect of the book, I think one thing I'm confident about is that it's different. It feels different. 
because you know sort of like combining the the peckham with the the time travel physics i think even some of the human stuff just trying to bring in more real things like you have scenes where like you have the kids in, in lunch and they're just cracking jokes basically just you know busting jokes and, and going back and forth but i mean it's just random stuff that i i, I could have just imagined uh most teenagers or me and my mates when i was a teenager kind of those situations to make it feel a bit more real but definitely one of the driving goals for me writing this was to try and explain um time travel physics this is einstein's theory of relativity um in a way that would make sense for anyone including a kid so most of people who read it will, will come back to me saying i really understood it like i sort of actually really got what was going and they always at the same time have the sort of things like i'm not sure if i fully understood it though which i think is exactly what i wanted to sort of give you 80 percent of the answers to sort of spark that curiosity and then if you still you know if i've done it right then you go ahead and have a look at something else and get more interested in it so that was definitely a big part of the motivation yeah yeah that's reassuring to hear because i definitely feel like i capped at 80 percent understanding <laughs> <laughs> i was terrible at physics when i was at school but um it was really really interesting to read those elements and it is very unique i don't think i've ever picked up a book that's got that kind of rich background to it where it's got that explanation and stuff like that so did you did you did you always feel like you were terrible at physics oh yeah never good never ever good at physics i think it matters so much who your teacher is because you can get like a absolutely shining teacher and they'll explain it in a way that you understand but i think things like physics but perhaps where it's not as real in front of your face you can't yeah. see see what's happening in front of you so it's harder to understand it i think you can only see the effects of a lot of the stuff of it yeah, sure. No, I mean, it's interesting you say that. That, that was in many ways what I was trying to do with the, the upper mm. world. I think you're right. It, it's an abstract subject. You can't feel and touch it. But like you said, you can see its effects, right? So if I've got this mobile phone in my hand and if I make a call right now, every, everybody will know. Everybody has, has this understanding that what's connecting us is this invisible thing, right? So these, these waves that are going from my phone to the blah, blah, blah. And so you have these things that you can't touch but matter. And what I was trying to do was take these abstract concepts you, you semi-learn in school <laughs> or forced down your throat um, and then find a way to make them visual. So the upper world is actually a visualization of this stuff so you don't have to make as much of a leap. Yeah, yeah. And, and it made sense. And the, the diagrams and stuff that you see in the book and, and the sort of exp explanation of those really helped to bring it to life. I think it's going to translate really, really well to a film. So it, that would be really good to see. So yeah, do you, do you see yourself as a, as a sort of writer first or a physicist first or, or something else? Um, that is a good question. Uh, you're treating a, a slight existential crisis in your <laughs> showing up. But, um, do you know what? Probably, I mean, like, for, for practical purposes, I'm a writer. I'm not producing physics output right now. And so I'm a writer. And my focus is just on writing a great story. You know, I, I, would, I, would, ex I would exclude the physics if the physics wasn't real. Um, and so the, the big reason why I put in the physics anyway is, is also because you know we, it's not just like abstract time travel we actually exist within time <laughs> and time serves as like a sort of metaphor for a lot of things like you know the future is all about hope and, and fears and the past is all about you know potentially regret and healing and so it also acts as a great metaphor for 
the things that make a great story. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I'm def- definitely, I'm, I'm, I'm a writer physicist. There's your answer. Thanks for, for pulling it out of me. No, that's right. You can u- update your Twitter bio accordingly. <laughs> writer physicist. Um, so moving away from physics then, the, the book, as you mentioned, has quite a lot of other themes. You know, I think there's, there's philosophy is quite a big theme. There's also free will, determinism, all of that stuff. And then identity, a bit of gang violence and stuff like that. How important was it for you to include all of these themes? Did they come to you while you were writing or did you set out to include all of that stuff when you started? Yeah, I mean, I think I just wanted variety. Eh? Mm. Um, I wanted variety. And then wherever I went, I chose an extreme of something, I tried to have the opposite extreme, if that makes sense. And so, you know, we, we talked about sort of the fact that I had all this, this physics in there. I decided because I have that kind of slightly, slightly more abstract, otherworldly stuff, I needed to place, put it in a very specific place, like really ground it. So that's why the story is set in Peckham um, rather than just some sort of generic place, mm. just so it feels very concrete and real so the you know 80 percent of the journey is like extra close and real and intimate and you can feel it and see it you can visit it if you want and then you know the other 20 percent lets it allows you to escape to something a bit bigger um and then i think also in terms of reflections of of their lives you know i think on the one hand you just have like a group of again fun loving mates um and you know probably kind of somewhere in the middle and then on the other hand you have um so who ends up becoming like a a doc, sort of a, a PhD kind of lecture professor type thing. Um, and so that's kind of another reflection of, of that. And then also you have the gangs, which, I mean, for instance, in my life, is, is, I haven't really interacted much with that. But in terms of like just people, I guess, not so much gang stuff, but just people. So I wanted to reflect that as well. I think one of my thoughts is just what the kids <laughs> are kind of into um and listening to and sort of stuff and when i was writing this i was listening i was just banging drill and and, and grime and all that like throughout the whole writing process and i think it basically made it into <laughs> seeped into the book um and I, I i'm hoping that kids will like it for that reason partly um you know i've got adult readers and this is a crossover book so adults and kids but i think that a lot of the kids will, will hopefully be attracted to that but also take out the message that there's a third way to, to everything. Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's such a good point. And I think having read it, it did provide like quite an authentic voice, I think, for children. Uh, you know, maybe like a bit of a time capsule because it, it mentioned specifically some of those things. You know, they're talking about like TikTok dances at lunch and stuff like that. And I think <laughs> that kind of thing, it's so rare when you've got a adult author writing teen dialogue or young person's dialogue because it can come across as very sort of out of touch or very shoehorned in but um I feel like this was really authentic and even though when I went to school TikTok was not around or none of these like references were around but it reminded me that like back and forth that banter really reminded me being sat in class and messing around all of that stuff (laughs) it's interesting to hear that the grounding element is is really there because I felt that so much while reading. I felt, oh yes, this is this is a book that knows where it's meant to be. <laughs> and I suppose I would call it sci-fi. I don't know if you would call it something different, but um, is this the kind of book that you like to read? Yeah, definitely. I mean, that was probably my number one bar. Sort of like, is this the sort of kid 
I mean, the, the sort of book where, you know, 16-year-old Femi, 16-year-old me, um, picked it up off of the, the road and didn't know who was by and read it, it would be like, this is sick. Um, that, that was really the bar for me, basically, because it's so hard to judge otherwise. I mean, I'm, I'm a debut writer, and so I'd, I'd never done this before. And so you just, not only are you wondering whether your book is good enough, but also whether it's it, it, whether it's good enough to you, but also whether it's good enough to the world. Um, but I think getting to grips with the, the first question, whether it's good enough to you, and looking at that from different angles is actually um, the, the way to getting it to the, the way of achieving it, the sort of everybody else digging it as well. Yeah, definitely. It's that classic from, um, oh, really amazing, important writer. I can't remember. She said, if you haven't, write, write the book that you want, that you want out in the world or something like that yeah yeah no i love that i think it's tony morrison tony morrison yeah 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 no, yeah 100 um so i definitely felt like what this kind of thing didn't exist when i was a kid um it didn't exist when i was in my 20s and i still i still wasn't i only started reading in my late late, late sort of 20s and not, not too long ago at all so it didn't exist then and it, it didn't feel like it existed now I, I spent a lot of time searching for something like it subconsciously it just having that nagging thing that you're describing, just sort of like, does this exist, you know? So I finally decided I had to write it. Your, your, other, your initial point around sci-fi, I mean, the category is not I, necessarily ideal because I think when people hear sci-fi, they think of outer space. Um, <laughs> yeah. And they think of like going to the, you know, to different planets, et cetera. This is very grounded. It's almost more, it's more psycho-spiritual than it is galactic. <laughs> and and I, I think, um, there's other books like that, but I, I, that was another part of just making it feel like something anybody anybody could pick up. So you say that you only started sort of really getting into reading in your late 20s. What pulled you away from the other things you were doing and into writing then? I think the first thing was probably just knowing it was an option to like have serious alternate interests versus work. <laughs> you know, I was working with a company, the solar, solar energy investing company based in Nairobi and I was based in Nairobi and Lagos kind of going back and forth doing solar energy projects. It was really cool work. I mean, it was, you know, it was sustainable energy. It was a part of the world that I'm from and, and want to see prosper. I think it took me until my mid twenties to realize that I actually had a strong creative muscle. So everything you just said about how you felt about physics was kind of how I felt about English and and English and what are the other humanities? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Uh, <laughs> oh, there you go. I mean, actually, I always enjoyed art mostly, but I didn't go to A level. I, mean, I just did all the science and math A levels. So I always I pegged myself as somebody who was a science person um, and not good at that sort of other stuff. Um, almost, I, almost, I felt like it was an intrinsic trait that, you know, I am not good at this. Mm. So I think there was a bit of a switch in my thinking where I'd realized. I had learned things that I didn't used to be good at. And then I, I had a friend or two who were just writing and they told me, oh, it's actually quite straightforward. If, if you can have a conversation with people and you have like half decent grasp of like a few concepts, you can learn the rest. And so I just started kind of getting into, into reading and, and writing and well, the reading came first. And that was again, more just because most of the fiction I'd read growing up was recommended by my teachers um, and just felt really tangential to anything I was experiencing. So, yeah, I just had to start getting books, recommended books that I really enjoyed. And I was like, oh, shit, that book, that book was sick. Mm. What kind of stuff, what kind of things? It was all over the place. I mean, I, I had this sort of 
read like a, a birth where I just realized all this sick content was out there. But um, so it's all over the place. But I mean, I, I remember Americana was one of the earlier ones. I remember Ender's Game, Ursula Gwyn. Yeah, there, there was it was all over the place. Um, and I I kept reading these pop science books as well. And so I think just having all of these things swirling in my my mind at the same time, them all feeling new, just kind of made me ask what what can I bring to this basically. So to to sort of move on to talking a bit more in depth about the characters, we obviously we have two really really strong characters in Esso and Rhea. Did you enjoy writing them and did you sort of learn anything while you were writing them? Yeah, 100%. I mean, probably Rhea even more than Esso. Yeah, I mean, Rhea's a, a, a 15-year-old girl, the second protagonist in the, in, the, in the book. Yeah, I mean, I think just this, like the obvious thing of like a, a, a guy like me writing a, a girl like Rhea, there's some overlap, but not, not that much. And I think there's always a sort of question of like how, when you're writing somebody who's different to you, how do you do that in a way that you don't just mess up <laughs> the character and just like, it's so, I mean, I'm sure you, you've read plenty of books where men have written girls and, and messed that up. And so I kind of ended up, the strategy I, I ended up using was kind of like a three-step strategy. So the first step was write Rhea the same way that I would write a boy. Because I think the first kind of failing that I would naturally have is to assume, I mean, men and women are, are cognitively equivalent. Like we're, we're born with these empty brains and then as experiences happen, we learn certain rules. It's like, it's very algorithmic and it's just constantly evolving based off the environment and absorbing more information and constantly updating. So you can make up more, it's exact same process. <laughs> um, the only difference is the society that they're in. And I, I have a decent understanding of society. So anyway, first up step was just writing it the same way you, you play a boy. So if this happens to them, how are they going to think? How are they going to feel? Blah, blah. Second step was then trying to read a lot more books with, with female protagonists and trying to understand and, and trying to think about what the differences are, because we, we all also are different because of that different conditioning. And so that was the second step, actually trying to honor the, the differences. Um, and then the third step, because I'm still a dude, was just getting women to read it and, and give me their very honest feedback and sort of not hold back from telling me if my baby's ugly. <laughs> <laughs> did, you, did you have any um, shocking revelations during that? Oh, that's a good question. Well, not too shocking, but like, just, yeah, I mean, there, there, there were a lot of things. One was around hair, actually, was a big thing, because Rhea's a, a black girl, and so just, like, I think, talking about the amount of mental space that I can take. <laughs> you know, I've got three sisters, but I think even then, they probably still hide a few of the, 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 the yeah, they, they, to an extent, hide the amount of mental space that I holds. That was an interesting one, but I think, I think for the most part, it, it, it ended up wasn't too much different. Eh? I mean, she's I, I cheated a little bit because, you know, well, it's not really cheating, but she she's really really into sports, and I was in, I was into sports, and so it, that helped in terms of understanding the nuances of that. And I think the level that top female athletes are playing at right now is higher by quite a bar than the level I was playing at when I was sixteen. So. It was just quite straightforward to like just have her be really, really focused on, on that kind of stuff as well. Mm. Yeah, that comes across. Another element of the book that, coming from a library podcast, I was very pleased to see was that Peckham Library was a sort of central feature 
in the plot, although, you know, maybe not the uh, best example of how to use a library. Um, <laughs> but um, I've never been to Peckham Library. I went and looked online at pictures of it because it's described so, so well in the book. So you talk about like a surfboard type structure that's on top of it. And it's such a beautiful building. It's yeah. like stunning. It, it looks like the most incredible place. As far as libraries go, do they hold any sort of special significance to you? Yeah, I mean, I think there's definitely people who spent their whole childhoods in libraries. I've always just, and I think it's probably more Peckham Library than actually just libraries full stop. Peckham Library itself, like within it, I spent a lot of time in there as a kid, actually. I, you know, I'd be back in Peckham on holidays and like half terms, and then I would, I would always go to the library. I'd study for my A-levels in Peckham Library you know, for my exams as well when I was doing uni. And a lot of the, even some of the books that I read that went into the book came from Peckham Library. So it wasn't actually that intentional. Uh, there wasn't meant to be sort of a metaphorical message about libraries in there necessarily, but I think when you're writing, yeah, your subconscious just pulls out the things that are kind of most prominent, you know? Yeah. I mean, I, I, lo- a, I love the fact that they made a beautiful building and you have kids running in and out there all the time. And it's a place where they can kind of just have a bit of quiet, you know, and then sort of do something besides all the stuff that we all do, which is look at our phones or have to like talk to people or be shouted out by people. So, yeah, so yeah, yeah, exactly. It's a good, it's a good space is the library. Yeah. So I think my, my next question was really going to be about possibly the most exciting thing to ask an author, which is obviously you mentioned that you have Netflix picking up the film you know, how did you feel to get that news? Something that you'd written had been picked up by Daniel Kaluuya and had interested people at that kind of level. Yeah, I mean, it felt insane, to be honest. You know, uh, let, me, I mean, let, let me tell you where my mind was at when, <laughs> when, when, I, when I went into all of this. I mean, I spent two and a half years writing a book and then I submitted it um, to a bunch of publishers through my agent who I'd gotten a couple of months before. And when I wrote the book, I was in the state of mind of like, okay, do you know what? I did my thing here. Like, here's what I felt. I was like, this deserves to get published. And I had no idea how I was going to do, but I was basically readying myself for the fight where people were going to say, you know what? This is, you know, this doesn't quite work, blah, blah, blah. I was ready for the fight, basically, because I thought it was good enough. That's where I was. And so to have kind of the opposite happen and just like have a lot of um, love and, and support for the book and interest from people like Netflix was completely, yeah. <laughs> I had to put down my boxing gloves and put on my party hat. <laughs> and so, yeah, no, I mean, it, it's, it's weird as well. Ultimately, I'm getting to do what I want, you know, what I wanted to do, what I want to do and what I've wanted to do for a while, actually. And it's, 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 I'm getting to use my creativity, which is sick. It's a, it's a privilege. It's also just really overwhelming just because the, the gradient of change in my life has been steep. Um, and so I'm just learning a new industry. I'm launching a new book. I changed where I was living. I was, I was in Kenya actually just before the pandemic and then moved back to, to Peckham when the world was shutting down. It's the, the book is out now and it's launched and so now I can like kind of think about a few other things and so I'm writing book two. So yeah, yeah, I'm enjoying it still. So did you do any writing during the pandemic? Was that, you know, you say you wrote over two years, was any of that time during the actual lockdown? I did a lot of editing. So when my book got picked up by Penguin and also Netflix, I still had to like, finish, I still had to do that. I, I handed in a finished book 
but I still had to do a couple more drafts and those can take ages. So I had another few months of those that took me like late into last year. Must be quite an ego boost that an unedited version of your book got picked up for a film. You know that you've written something very good when that happens. <laughs> yeah, no, I'll take it. I'll take it. It was sick. I mean, those, you're right. It's a really big stamp of, of approval. So yeah, sick. I mean, to be honest, I, I, I don't think about it too much. Most of the time when I talk about it I, or even think about it, I, I almost feel like it's happening to someone else and I'm kind of just getting on with the work. <laughs> we always ask our authors, what, what's next for them? So uh, yeah, what, what's next for you? Yeah, so a couple of things. I am currently writing my book too. So that's going to be the Upper World sequel. Um, it's, a, it's a prequel sequel, kind of like The Godfather I don't know if you, that's a good, good reference, a useful reference. <laughs> and then I'm, I'm, uh, I'm executive producer of the film as well. That's amazing. Um, yeah, no, that's been fun. So I'm having monthly, roughly, calls with like the producers. So Dan, Daniel Clear is one of the producers. The, the, the other producer is a guy named Eric Newman and his company, Glenn Electric. They made like Narcos and, and, and Brighton and quite a few other things. And so it's just been sick learning from, from those guys. So can you give us any clues on what to expect? Is it going to be a sort of like gritty, you know, like Narcos is obviously very raw at points. Is it, is it going to be at that level or are we, are we toning it down a little bit? Definitely not. I mean, I think it'll, it'll feel quite similar to the book in terms of tone. So, you know, um, a, 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 bit, a bit of grittiness, a bit of action, a bit of sort of philosophical slash science introspection um, and a lot of fun.